going to be reading Judges um, chapter 7, starting at verse 9, and I'll be going to uh, verse 16. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are attacked, or if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura went, Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valleys, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man, just as a man was telling his friends about a dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Uh, Brent read down through the end of verse 16, so uh, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshitta toward Zerera as far as the border of Abel Mehaloha near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Uh, someone asked me, uh, they were reading through uh, Judges and saying all kinds of weird names and place names. What am I supposed to make of that? And uh, I think that's just for completeness of the story and to, and to add some accuracy. Uh, I want to show you some, just some simple tricks for understanding a the theology of the passage. It's the theology that's important. 
So this is the major trick in biblical narrative. When they want to stress something, and stress something is theologically important, someone says that. So you use discourse to emphasize what is important for your theology. The narrator doesn't usually give you what's important, although there's one place in this text where I think it's significant. For the most part, it's when somebody says something that drives the theology. So if you just notice what is being said here in verse 9. Now, by the way, the best way to emphasize something is important, have God say it. So when God says something in the Bible, direct speech, that's really important. That's just a narrative technique they use. So notice verse 9. Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. God says he's going to give it. That's the providence, sovereignty, control of God working in human history. That's going to be one of his major points. Notice how else he says that. Verse 14. The interpretation of a dream. And so this is a friend hearing a dream and he interprets it. Notice what he says. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. The Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. God has done that. God has done it. God has given it. Same point. God's in control of what's happening. God is the one who's making this happen. Notice verse 15. Now Gideon speaks. Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Saying the same thing over and over again. Notice somebody saying it. Now Gideon says it. The Lord has given them into your hands. Okay, so simple narrative technique. Look for that as you're reading Bible stories. That will drive the theology, and you can easily see what does the writer of this material want us to learn about God? And what, is, what does he want us to think about God? And in this case, God saves his people. And God is the one who does it, and God is the one who controls events, and God is the one who works. God is the one who gives up the enemy. God is the one who gives the enemy success in the first place. And over and over again, he stresses that, and he does it by, by having people say it. So you realize this is what's important. Okay, that was extra. That's just freebie. That's not the sermon. Uh, last week, we learned that God chose Gideon to save his people. And so Gideon put out a call, and people responded. 32,000 men showed up to help. And God said, this is too many. If you were to win with 32,000, you would think that you had done it. So you need less men so that everyone can know that the glory belongs to me. So Gideon says, everybody who's afraid, go home. 
22,000 go home. He's left with 10,000. God says, you still have too many men. So take them down to the water, and I will separate them. And those that drank their heads directly to the water, he sent home. Those who cupped the water, he kept. He kept 300 men. Uh, That's where we pick up the story today. He's got 300 men. He's ready to go. God says, go down to the camp, win the battle. Verse 9. Get up, go down into the camp, for I have given it, I have given it into your hand. So he should just go. But notice God gives him an out. But if you are afraid to go down, then you and your servant go down into the camp. I used to do this story at uh, Forest Cliff Camp. And uh, when I was uh, the visiting pastor or whatever for the week, uh, different cabins would have me come in late at night to give a devotional at like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And I would always tell them the story of Gideon. And uh, I would get to this point in the story, and I would say to the kids, I would say, now do you think he was still afraid? And half of the kids go, no, he can't be afraid. God's told him to go down. And the other half would go, yeah, he's still afraid. God better still help him. Well, sure enough, he's still afraid. Good thing he didn't have the option of going home when he said anybody still afraid can go home. He had to stay. He was the leader. Reminds me of uh, the Canadian. We've only had one Canadian to be the Prime Minister of England. And uh, when he was Prime Minister of England, uh, they asked him why he was following the people. And he said, well, I have to follow them. I'm their leader. And that's all I know about him. That's the only quote I know. And, uh, well, Gideon could not go home. He was the leader, even though he was afraid. So he takes his servant, and they go down to the camp. And uh, notice what God says. You will hear what they are saying, and your hands will be strengthened, and you will go down to the camp. And so they sneak down into the camp, And just as they sneak down to the camp, a man is recounting to his friend a dream. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And, wow, a round loaf of barley bread, turning all around, came into the Midianite camp, came to the tent and struck it, and it fell down and overturned. The tent collapsed. And his friend answered and said, This can only be the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Notice these things. God gives the timing of the attack and the location. Right now, go down. But if you are afraid, God graciously helps Gideon. He needs courage and fortitude. He doesn't have it. And God gives it to him. I was just thinking uh, this week about this miracle that God does. And just use your imagination a little bit with me and think about this miracle. First of all, the miracle of the dream and its interpretation. Uh, First part of the miracle is God has to know Gideon is still afraid. And so he has to set it up. God knows that. Okay, that's the first part of the miracle. God has prepared everything just for Gideon. 
I'm going, I'm going ahead of myself. Number two, what does God do? He makes a promise. And the promise is this. Go down into the camp and you'll hear something that will change your attitude. Second part of the miracle. The promise. Number three, God knows in advance what someone will say and how it will help. He knows in advance when this will happen. Now, I don't know how God does it. How does God know? Just think about it. If God was making a prediction about you going somewhere and hearing someone say something specific, how does God know what that other person's going to say? How does he know that? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how he knows it. I think two ways he knows it. Number one, he knows the future because he's timeless. But secondly, he knows the future because he creates the future. He helps create the future. God's hands in everything. So that's the third thing. He knows what somebody's going to say and when they're going to say it. And the, and the scary part about it is that God does all of this without anyone feeling that God has made them do it. The scriptures picture God as a puppet master and he's, and he's pulling the strings. But no one ever feels the strings and no one ever sees the strings. That's spectacular. God makes things happen and you can't see that he makes things happen. Point number four of the miracle. He takes a dream and he puts it in somebody's head. God makes you dream what you dream. I always tell people God can still communicate through dreams. I think he still does today. And some of you have had dreams where God has given you a message. Talk to Jim Hale sometime about him coming to Christ, about an incredible dream that brings him to Jesus. God still does that. God so moves the person with the dream that he tells his friend about the dream, and then God enables the friend to interpret the dream and give the correct theological meaning. That dream can only mean that Gideon is going to destroy us and God has given us into his hands. That's incredible. Point number seven, the dream itself is funny, scary, and strikingly true. When was the last time you were scared of a loaf of bread? Imagine saying, I was really scared last night. I saw this loaf of bread. Oh, boy, it was terrible. But what's scary is the rolling loaf of bread wipes out a tent. Now, how bad is your tent that a loaf of bread can destroy it? But there's also theological significance to the very dream itself. The loaf of bread is insignificant and not scary, just like Gideon and the Israelites are insignificant and not scary. If you heard about, if the Midianites heard about, listen, Gideon's got an army and he's coming for you, which they had heard. And if you had told them, listen, they got 300 guys, <laughs> they would start laughing. And then if you told them, listen, they don't even have any weapons, they have jars torches and trumpets, they would laugh even harder. The insignificant 
wins the battle like a loaf of bread wiping out a camp. Eighth part of the miracle, God, God, God enables Gideon to get close to the camp. He's just sneaky and tricky enough to get safely close enough to hear the dream conversation. And then finally, God arranges all of the timing perfectly so that he's there at the right time. He hears the dream. He goes back up. He says to the 300, it's time to go, and they win the battle. That's an incredible miracle. Notice verse 15. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and returned to the camp. He worshipped. Worshipped. He doesn't sing a song. He doesn't make a sacrifice. But he worships. So what is worship? Gideon can do it at night outside of an enemy tent after hearing a dream. What is worship? That he can do it right there. Worship is the recognition of the awesomeness and greatness of God so that I feel and I act and I will speak. Worship is, is when we respond to the greatness of God in feeling, acting, and speaking. It gives God the credit. And we can worship in our homes, in our closet, without saying a word because of the greatness of God. We can do it with one another, and we can do it alone. This is an old book on worship. Rediscovering the Missing Jewel. The missing jewel of the church, worship. He says, what then is worship? Worship is an active response to God whereby we declare his worth. And I go, you know, something. sometimes you don't even have to declare it. An active response to God whereby we sense his worth, feel his worth, bask in his worth. I think... Gideon hears the dream, and he's so overwhelmed. He goes, I can't move right now. I just have to just think about how great God is. This is so spectacular. What he has done by having me come to this tent and hearing this amazing dream. There are times when we, when we will see the hand of God do incredible things. You pray and you pray for something, and then the prayer is answered. And there are a number of ways to respond. I know I've done that, and sometimes I go, well, God, that took a long time for you to get about doing that. Or there have been times I thought, wow, look what I did with my prayer. But the right response, worship. Recognizing the awesomeness of God in what he has done. Praising and thanking him for what he did. For years when I was growing up, uh, living in Tennessee, South Carolina, never got to see my grandparents that much. Some of them lived in Wallaceburg, one of my grandparents in Wallaceburg, one of them in uh, Edmonton. The ones in Edmonton we didn't see much. And they were good church people but did not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for years. Finally, it got to the place I just assumed this is not going to happen. We've been praying for, for years, for decades, for them to come to Christ. And then came the news. They'd gotten saved. 
wow. All you can do is praise God. God did it. Because if it was if it was human, if it was humans, it would have taken place immediately. We we would have said, "Let's do it right now." Well, my grandmother just passed away a couple of weeks ago. She's actually being buried this weekend out in Calgary. And praise God that she has things squared away with the Savior. Praise God. Thank you, God, for working in her life. Thank you, Jesus, for being such a great Savior. He hears the dream, and he worships. Credit goes to God. Well, then comes the battle. He goes back to the camp. Verse 15. He returned to the camp and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And he takes the 300 men and he divides them into three groups. They have the trumpets, the empty jars, and the torches. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I, when all, I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then you blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19, they blew the trumpets. They broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands, holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Chaos and mayhem as the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of the east turn on each other in the middle of the night. And I just think that those camels were a big problem. (laughs) Because the camels are running every which way. And it's just chaos. And it's funny. Gideon's 300, they don't even strike a blow. They can't. We don't even know if they have a sword among them. We don't know if they have a sword, a spear, or a knife. They shout out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then everything else takes place in the, in the middle of the camp. That's the doing of God. In the movie 300, the Greeks are attacked by the Persians. They have 300,000. At least that's the, that's the inflated amount they say they have. And maybe they have that much by the time you count their fleet and all their servants. 300,000. And they are attacking Greece. And Greece is in trouble. They have not prepared. They're not together. They don't have their armies gathered. And so they decide we've got to hold a pass against them uh, until we can get, get organized. And so they send 300 Spartans. Spartans train for warfare from childhood. That's all they do. These are, there are not many warriors among Sparta because it's only the free men can be warriors. They have the free men who are trained for their life as gladiators and, and soldiers, and the rest of them are slaves. And so they send their best 300 to hold the pass, and they do it. They hold it long enough for the rest of the Greeks to get their battle plan together and get their naval plan together and get organized and defeat the Persians. 300 incredible warriors. I know a better 300 story. 
and it's the story of Gideon. But he doesn't use 300 men who have trained for war their whole life because God doesn't need the 300 best warriors. He just needs 300. And in fact, I don't even know if they can swing a sword. They can blow a trumpet. They can smash a jar. By the way, I was helping somebody move last night, and I was carrying a box, the box of dishes. You know what happened. The box opened up, and all the dishes smashed. And it was a loud noise, and it was a mess as the dishes ran down the stairwell. Oh, I wish somebody else had done it. I wish Rob had done it. What, what a noise. So he, you have 300 soldiers. What can they do? They can drop a jar and smash it. That qualifies me for being one of those soldiers. I could do that. I could, I could smash a jar, and I could hold up a torch, and so could you. You could have been one of those soldiers, every one of you. Because I think you can all smash a jar too. <laughs> you can drop a plate and break it. And you can hold up a torch. Now I don't know about blowing a trumpet. But uh, I think we could all manage to blow a trumpet. And win a great battle. Why? Because God's the hero. God wins the battle. He's the one who does it. He's the one who makes them afraid. He's the one who causes the chaos. He, he's the one who has given Midian into their hands. And the funny thing is, is the people of Midian already know that. That was the dream and the interpretation that they themselves had said, God is going to give us into their hands. Now, if I was going to go into a night battle, I would choose night goggles and a semi-automatic. And uh, Gideon, we don't even know if they have any weapons. But the ordinary weapons of war are not needed because God is in control. You notice at the end of the chapter, the story has come full circle. Verse 25. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. I think at kind of ordinary places, and all of a sudden, well, that's where Oreb died, and it became known as, well, that's where Oreb died, that's the rock of Oreb. And some ordinary winepress, well, that's where Zeb died, so now it became the winepress of Zeb. But if you remember how the story opened, the story opened with Gideon threshing his wheat at the winepress because he was afraid. And then he sacrificed uh, with the angel there. He put a sacrifice, sacrificed it to God on a rock. And now God gives the victory, and the leader of the Midianites is killed at the wine press, and the other one is killed at the rock. The story has come full circle. Two big points. Number one, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Not only was it true for the children of Israel, it's still true today that your salvation is not accomplished by you or by human means. It's only accomplished by God. What man could not do, 
God did by sending his son into this world and putting him on a cross so that he could save mankind. So that no one will stand in heaven and say, I did it myself. Because the glory belongs to the Lord. That's true all through the Bible. The glory belongs to the Lord. Especially true of our salvation coming into the family of God. God's the hero. He does it by sending his son into the world. Secondly, God's in control. And he's in control of our lives too. You read these stories and you're supposed to see God does incredible things. I think he does it all the time. Some of the things are so insignificant we don't notice. But then along comes those events in our life that are huge and spectacular. And we go, look at what God has done. God has done this. How he works all the details out so that they come together. Thank you, Lord, that you are in control. Third, we're not done with Gideon. Now, I was supposed to finish chapter 8 today. Obviously, I'm not going to finish chapter 8. So next time, we will finish 8 and 9. The story of Gideon is really a tragedy story. You haven't seen that yet. You've seen, you've seen the success. God uses a man to do great things. But in a tragedy, the person has flaws. And the flaws cause his demise in a spectacular way. And next week we're going to talk about the demise of Gideon. Where his flaws cause great destruction. Especially for his family. His entire family gets killed. Because of him. And so that brings me to this point. God uses flawed people. You and me. He doesn't use perfect people. There's only one of those. He had to use a perfect person because we're all flawed. And God uses flawed people, and Gideon is one of those flawed people. God brings a great battle, deliverance for his people, and peace. But still, Gideon's not perfect. And the same thing's true in our lives. God uses us, and I think he wants to use us every day. And he wants to use us to help people. And he wants to use us to, to do great things in this world. But guess what? We're still flawed people. That's why we need him. And that's why we need a perfect Savior who has no flaws and forgiveness of our sins. By the way, that's where our flaws come from. Our sinful nature our sinful desires, and our acting on them. There is rescue for all of us. Even though we do great things, I think we're still flawed. Like Gideon. That's the, that's the end of the story. You have to come next week for that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.